Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I'm your host, Aliza Kelly, and I am so thrilled to meet Sonali today. Sonali is publicly known as a fat sex therapist, known for teaching fat phobia and healing through pleasure and popularizing politicized therapy. Sonali is no doubt a sun in Aquarius a moon in Capricorn, and a Gemini rising. Sonali, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to meet you and connect. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here. So when is your birthday? Exactly. What day? It is exactly Valentine's Day, February 14th. February 14th. Okay. I had a feeling that you were going to be exactly or almost exactly like my exact opposite because I'm August 18th, Leo. Aquarius and Leos are on the same access plane. So we see each other. We, I think a common misconception about oppositions is that they're like, you know, don't understand each other. But actually, it's because they exist on the same access. The values are totally the same. It's just different ways of getting there. And I know that, you know, as an Aquarius son, you fuck with that. (laughs) (laughs) I love a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) We are a lot. But I also I'm a Capricorn rising. um, So I my moon sees or your moon sees my rising, rising your moon, vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we're just totally flowing together and it's perfect. And I just knew it. So can you tell us a little bit about some of these things that you are? How did you become Mm -hmm. some of these things that you are today? And what was that journey like for you? Oh, this journey has really been a love letter to my younger self. It has been a long time coming. So I come to my work from my own lived experience. What I offer to the world is my own experience, experiences packaged and reflected through theory. And I I try to connect theory and big ideas to like my lived reality. Um, I was um, a fat kid who was put on non-consensual diets starting at the ages of like eight, nine, and 10 by my immigrant parents who were trying their best to like stay safe in white supremacy and racialized capitalism. And they really had a hard time transforming the generational trauma that they inherited and instead wanted to pass it down to me. And so we had a lot of conflict (laughs) in my house growing up as a kid and um, what I was challenged to do uh, from a really young age was decide whether or not I wanted to love myself or, or accept my fat body as it was. And a lot of my teen years were spent fighting for the right to like have, have sexuality and like experience sexual pleasure, just like my peers and just snatch it from the sky and not wait for someone else to hand it to me. And that meant making a lot of mistakes and <laughs> a lot of that, um, culminates into the person that I am today, just trying to find language for giving myself permission to exist exactly the way I am. I mean, this might be one of those episodes where I just, my Pisces moon just goes right ahead with the waterworks. Um, So, I mean, I have so many questions and I just also want to give you such a big hug, your younger self and you now, but especially younger you, because Um, that's, it poignant, you know? So did you know when you were the kid, when, you know, before the age of 10, even like, were, were you questioning the choices that your parents were making and the way that they were communicating 
to you and and what they were what their value set was that they were imposing or how were you metabolizing that as a kid yes like in the deepest marrow of my body i know that i knew it was wrong and i knew that it didn't feel good how do you think you knew that cuz those memories still sit with me like i still can remember the feeling and the shame in my body and it makes me want to cry too cuz these are the ways that i build bridges back to younger sonali um, and I stay really connected to her because she's so bold and she's so creative and she's so fun spirited too. You know, it's not just the sad, the sad memories. Um, some of my really most wonderful artistic memories are from like my younger years and they help me stay connected to my adult art practice. But I remember the shame I would feel standing across, um, at a family party, like a family friend's dinner party. I must have been 10. And standing across this like large buffet table at my neighbor's house and my dad making sure that he would follow me and make sure that he would go to the, the buffet table or like the, the grazing table to see what I was going to put on my plate. And he would give me like a hand signal to like tell me to lower the amount of food that was on my plate. And it hurt. It, it, it hurt my feelings. I, I wish that no one else would see it. It was usually in private. So it felt like this painful thing that only I saw that no one else could validate for me. And it was really sad, lonely experience as a kid when like all these adults in my family would notice. Sonali gets really mistreated by her parents. She gets really picked on and like singled out, even though both of her parents are also fat or plus size. And I use the word fat, you know, really non-judgmentally, not in a cruel way, just as a descriptor and no one like stepped in. And so I felt like I had to become that person to be like, this needs to stop. <laughs> so it was just this, some deep bravery inside of you that was able to sort of, I mean, and the imagery that's coming to mind here is almost like, like multi-generational you, like your older self today, maybe already communicating with your younger self then and being like, this is mean. This is mean. When I was being shamed from such a young age about my body and my changing body, I never questioned it. I didn't question it until I was, I mean, I'm still unpacking, you know, but it was never something that I realized could be questioned. I really took everything that was told to me um, at face value and I internalized every single criticism that I received. And compounded it to me not being worthy um, because there I didn't know that there I you know I, I really took those words those criticisms those critiques those judgments to heart I thought that yeah. there was something wrong with me um, and it's you know it's it that has also informed my work and my practice is being like wait there's nothing wrong here everything's fine like it's beautiful it's beautifully imperfect like that's the point you know but i'm i still am unpacking it and dealing with it and and realizing how persistent it still is and obviously now it's not just through your parents it's through society and it's all of these other conversations and it's just it, it it's never ending. Um, but what let's go into your teenage years for a second. I'm kind of curious, like on the topic of pleasure, what did that look like? <laughs> it 
it looks like uh, finding the Halloween candy that would get hidden every year um, and sneaking it and eating it anyway. It meant needing to get a job because finances were so surveilled and regulated so that I would have spending money for Taco Bell with my peers um, or my sister. <laughs> um, it looked like sleeping in on a Saturday morning and fighting with my parents to be able to rest my like growing teen body. Um, so I've tried to name things that are also not sexuality because children also like snatch pleasure out of the sky for themselves all totally. the time. Yeah. And like, I also would always decorate and adorn my living space with art all around me. And if I did, if I couldn't buy it, I would create it. And I'd like love collage and mixed media. And um, I named all of these things before I even named that. Like, I knew when I wanted to have sex at 15, I was like, I had known it for years. And like, it doesn't mean that I didn't make so many mistakes. Um and learn the hard way how consent works and how to engage with someone who actually deserves my sexual energy or, or access to my body. But, um, I absolutely went out there and, and had sex <laughs> when I wanted to, I can confidently say that. <laughs> and do you feel like when you went out and had sex that you did it with confidence? Do you feel like it was an act of rebellion was it something where you were feeling, was it an empowerment? Um, what did, what did that feel like for you? And again, I'm, I'm really curious because I had sex at 13 and for the first time and sex was one of the first and most visceral and probably one of the longest lasting ways that I would try to self-destruct was mm. through sex mm. um, and through hating my body. And then it was like, oh, if I can hate my body and then someone else hates my body, like, perfect. Now I, it, now it all makes sense, you know? <laughs> so it's, I, I, you know, I guess on our Leo Aquarius axis, it's kind of interesting to have the same, you know, to have sex, have had sex young, but to have different experiences with it, perhaps. Now, see, as a sex therapist, if I put on my sex therapist hat, I believe that our bodies have so much wisdom that they inherit that we sometimes are doing things that are protective and not even realize it because the same way that we're able to name what you described as self-destruction, I also could name as a way that we, our, our brains will use aspects of our body trauma and morph it into a kink or a fetish that we then have power and control over, right? Mm -hmm. Because I absolutely also enjoy humiliation and degradation in a sexual context and what that does for me as an adult um who can like make decisions now you know in a very different way than when i was 15 is that when i engage with someone and say i want you to call me this name and this name and this name and these are words i don't ever want you to say outside of a sexual context but i'm giving you permission here to me is giving permission i'm owning it and i'm getting pleasure out of it like that totally warps um the the trauma and puts it on its head and this is what uh those who survive sexual violence do all the time when we develop um non-consent or rape fantasies it is us flipping that trauma on its head and taking ownership of it and i think now that's incredible it's a superpower oh wow yeah i love that that's that's phenomenal and i think such an important way of thinking about 
what how our sexuality relates to a broader narrative of our life and some of the things that we've endured and how we can interact with sex and our sexuality to uh, repurpose, reclaim and re-empower ourselves when we have felt as if whether it was through sex or through outside circumstances that we've been stripped of our power and our agency. Yeah. The big difference, I think, if I were to test or ask someone to test for themselves, if they are walking through that fetish or kink in an like, empowering ways, I would ask them to reflect on how they feel after sex. After sex, do you feel like, oh, yeah, that like rocked my world. I felt great. Or do you feel worse about yourself? <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> that's going to tell you whether or not it's working. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> we, we, that would be going there for me, for sure. I mean, I, I think that it's really, I, I love the fact that your work combines sex and body because duh, but also, <laughs> but also so not duh. Like I just in the past few weeks, just this past Pisces season, I had a very sensual, personally erotic Pisces season where I was like, oh my God my body's a sexual object, like, but in a way that I want it to be like, I can, like, my sensuality is beautiful. Like my wholeness is beautiful. I'm Mm -hmm. fucking 31. You know, Mm -hmm. like this, I had sex 20 years ago for the first Mm -hmm. time. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. But it's the journey of also finding acceptance and love in the vessel. And I think Mm -hmm. that when I didn't have love in the vessel, which has been such a forever process, I haven't really been able to love my sexuality because mm. sexuality is so embodied. You, it's so physical. It's so carnal. It requires the fullness of the body. But for me, it was so, you know, sexuality was so cerebral for so many years because I didn't want to be in my body and I didn't know mm. how to be in my body and I felt so uncomfortable in it. So it's, you know, finding the fusion and the intersection of those points is... I think really where everything lives, you know, is mm. is recognizing them as one of the same. And I do think that when I was growing up, um, there was a separation of like sex being sort of in one camp and then body and, you know, body dysmorphia and healing and eating disorder treatment and all of that being here. And they didn't really communicate. You know, they didn't mm. really see each other. Um, But I'm curious as to how you ended up for yourself going into sex therapy and how that became how you sort of fused and found the 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 link between what you dealt with as a child, Mm -hmm. what you dealt with as a teenager and then your adult self. Mm. I came to sex therapy as the person in my family who I'm the eldest daughter. I did a, I, I did and have and continued to do a lot of caretaking work in my family. It's making it really emotional because um it's it's a burden and such an honor also to do that work in my family. And we're like really going through it right now, also in this exact moment. And I'm not gonna get into it, but I I, like many other healers of color, were this child in our family system whether that means extended family or the immediate family or even our chosen family and friends. We are often the person that people come to for non-judgmental 
advice or just to listen. And I know this because so many of my colleagues are also this child in their families. And so I come from a family that where I witnessed a lot of abuse and experienced abuse, um, body image abuse, specifically among other types, uh, financial, emotional, psychological. And I found myself drawn to learning about, you know, after college, wanting to get wanted to get involved in like volunteer work in my community. I really felt like I, I had enjoyed um, being an abortion escort. So at, at an, um, um, my local abortion clinics in New Jersey, we thankfully had two at that time, very close to me. And I would volunteer my time on like a Saturday morning to help people walk to the front door um, and like shield themselves from the really mean things that protesters would say. And I found myself like getting more into feminism. And it, This is in New Jersey? This was in New Jersey, yeah. That there were protesters outside of the clinics? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And like, oh, my goodness. If I'm being, <laughs> and I think I actually asked the double part. So I grew up in a family where I witnessed abuse. And one of the first relationships that I got into at the end of undergrad was also abusive. And this relationship has so many elements that I pull out um, examples from, and I try to do, offer popular education about. So my examples of body image abuse come from my own experiences in this relationship. And the relationship absolutely radicalized me. After I left this relationship, I felt more uh, connected to a lot of the feminisms that I was being exposed to through my, a women's studies course I happened to take at the end of school. And so I found myself wanting to get interested in abortion escorting and um, and also like volunteering for my local women's shelter and being a domestic violence response team member or a sexual assault um, response member, team member. And I had gone to trainings and there were like 16, 80 hour trainings, which like anyone can go to, they're free. And most places in the US have these types of teams locally. And I found myself doing that kind of volunteer work for two years where I would get a call in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m. And I would need to go to a police station and talk to someone about something really traumatic that they just experienced and help them walk through whether or not they, they want to get a restraining order against this person in their family, usually like a boyfriend or a spouse sometimes who's like, responsible for half of like the house care or the bills and like has the lease on their name and like the car in their name and like there are all these complex like systemic decisions that like get called into like whether or not someone can actually access a tv services or sexual violence services and i was like this i'm really good at this i bring like a really grounding energy and i was trained that these conversations i was going to have with victims should last like 10 15 minutes but I would, they would be like full therapy sessions sometimes, like an hour or two. And I was like, I had happened to meet a friend who was going to social work school. And she was like, you could learn more about how to do this in like a therapy way. And you could make a career out of it if you enjoy doing it, if you're good at it. That's how I came here. It was just like totally by chance. So then what does popularizing politicized therapy mean? <laughs> It looks like helping people understand that we need therapy 
that has political analysis. We need therapists who are able to help us understand when we are struggling with an eating disorder that is just as political as it is personal. Mm. I was telling a client literally this morning, a client who I love so much, that it's our decision when we are going to transform the lessons that we inherit sometimes from our mothers. For me, I inherited this message, (laughs) right? Right? (laughs) I mean, I, I, the, the moon stuff here, remind me to mention it because I don't want to cut you off, but the moon here is just insane. It's my mother, right? This, this message that I have to shrink myself came in tandem with so many other lessons about feminism that she was teaching me from the age of 14 and 15. When I, when I was 15 and got my, also my first job, my mom also taught me to always have my own bank account to never ever fuse all of my money with another person, to always have a way out and never be fully reliant on a man. (laughs) Like this woman was really preparing me for the violence of patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy. And I need therapists that come with that same analysis that like we need to be able to trust our bodies. I need therapists to have better anti-capitalist understandings. I need them to understand that when we are working with someone who's experiencing shame because on a Sunday they did nothing but watch Netflix and order takeout, even though they had a refrigerator full of food to cook and all they didn't do a single chore. They just laid on the couch all day. I need therapists to know that that is called productivity shame. That because we are so conditioned under capitalism to think of our bodies only as tools for capitalism, we forget what the hell is this purpose of this body. It is literally just to enjoy this short or long life that we have here. I, I love that so much. And I love the complexities. It's one of the reasons that I love the language of astrology and it is so fruitful for me is because the people who we love, who inspired us, also caused pain. And those things can coexist without countering each other. The pain that your family caused you doesn't make the wisdoms that they taught you any less valuable. But it also doesn't make the pain (laughs) and the trauma that you endured any less horrific, you know? And those things can coexist harmoniously somehow, Mm -hmm. you know? I think that that's why astrology can be so radical is because a lot of the way that in the structures of society of this American society that I grew up in, it was very much sort of like one or the other, you know, mm-hmm. and I talk to clients all the time who continue to remind me and reinstate. No, I love my mom, though. She was really good. And it's like, I know I know you did. But that doesn't mean that she wasn't hurtful, you know, and yeah. that didn't mean that doesn't mean that the things that she said to you haven't left wounds and scars and that they're still open. And you can love your mom and your mom could have tried her best and still hurt you, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's definitely I think that that's what makes it very confusing, though, especially when you're younger, is that there can be so much amazing wisdom and love and joy and, uh, you know, experiences like for me and, and my very complex relationship with my mom, my mom, you know, we were watching Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was eight. And that was so cool because it just, you know, I immediately I was like, oh, I there's a whole other way of seeing the world. She's an artist. 
But I was also watching a hypersexualized movie at eight. And like that was a lot for me to take in, which then also leads to, you know, it's a microcosm of my mom also, you know, when I was 10, taking my picture and showing me how how I would look with a nose job, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but my mom also is then like taking me to concerts and I'm seeing Patti Smith and she's telling me about like stealing books and then she goes to jail and then like it's like, you know, there's just wild sort of all of these things coexist and and make things really complicated. But I think that the world and our capitalist structure and our American society really don't know how to have things coexist comfortably, mm-hmm. which is why we get so into these like extremes and we get so into like this has to be this way and this is this way and that's that. But it's like, no, no, no. Things are multidimensional. Things are nuanced. And I I really appreciate that astrology has given me such a great language to work through nuance because you know, describing, I think that that was so much of the fragmentation of my experience was like, did I have a bad childhood? Did I have a good childhood? And it's like, you kind of had everything, you know, it was kind of all like, it's, it's, you had all of it, you know? Um, but I think that it's, you know, especially when it comes to moon and mom and body and eating and sex, like all of that from an astrological perspective is actually embedded in our lunar position. Mm-hmm. And in the role that the the moon plays in our chart. So your moon in Capricorn, for instance, is a really interesting one because technically the moon is considered in its detriment in Capricorn. It's it at home in Cancer, which is the sign associated with the mom. Capricorn is associated with like the archetype of the father. The moon, however, is the mom. So there's an inherent paradox in there. And oftentimes mm-hmm. what I see with the moon in Capricorn is someone who had to parent their mother. And it doesn't mean that their mom was a mess. It means that they felt responsible. You know, they felt responsible for and those responsibilities have then it's, you know, a lifetime of sort of reprocessing. Like, what does it actually mean? And like, how did men affect your mom? That also Mm -hmm. always is a, a role of moon and Capricorn, I've noticed, is that the person who has that position becomes very aware of like, how does my mom relate to the archetype of the father and the man and, and the system, the patriarchy? I'm curious if that resonates with your experience. That totally resonates. Um, I feel so responsible for my mom that it took me until I was like 30, 31 to like move out from her house and to stop taking care of her in the ways that I was. I was putting my adulthood on pause and I actually, I don't think I've like admitted that out loud to many people. Um, I have a lot of shame about it. And it is also one of the big reasons why I grapple with this so hesitantly, this question of do I ever want to mother or parent? And I imagine that I would love to be an aunt and mothering myself is one of the greatest like privileges and joys being able to do that now yeah i i really understand and i really relate like i always as a kid and there's pictures of me as really little like playing with dolls and like the intensity of me taking care of this toy 
was like really next level. It was like <laughs> hair brushing. But go to sleep. Do you want tea? Like, are you well? And I realized that a lot of that was me needing to take care of myself and projecting it onto a baby doll. Mm -hmm. And I always went, grew up and being like, I'm going to be a great mom. I'm going to be a great mom. Thank God I was not a mom throughout. You know, I'm still not a mom. And <gasps> I, and it's because I, it's like the more, the older that I get, the more I'm like, oh, fuck my life. Like if I hadn't, if I was a mom and I hadn't addressed that thing, holy oh. fuck. Like, right. This is a whole other generation that's destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. We would have transformed some lessons, but yeah, you're right. We would have passed down others. I don't know. I mean, it took me, a, it's, but it's crazy because sometimes you don't realize like how packed in shit is, you know? And like, at least for me, it's, yeah. you know, the unraveling process, it, it seems like it's going to be eternal. And I do think yeah. that as I'm getting older, it's getting to a point where I can have a template for dealing with surprises, you know, dealing with that surprise breakthrough realization, that surprise memory, that surprise like, oh, fuck, that wasn't cool, you know, and I can like, you know, it doesn't rock my whole world to have one of those mind fucks. But that's recent, you know, <laughs> that's recent. There were some like destabilizing things, you know, that as as an adult doing work and working with clients, which is so, so much about a mirror. Absolutely. That you're it's like breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. And like you're working with someone else, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spend 30 hours of my week facing a mirror. And I think that I mean, at minimum. Uh, I also do radical education, freelancing on the side. So that's like with an audience of 30 students or more. Um, so I am very comfortable. I shouldn't say that. There are plenty of things I'm not comfortable about seeing <laughs> in that mirror. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Do, being able to admit that I am perfectly imperfect and will require a whole life of doing this kind of work forever until I die. Um, is like in one hand, like alarming because it's like, oh, what, what else am I going to discover? But on the other hand, comforting that I don't have to have it all figured out. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about like social media for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm curious about how, what your relationship is with the, these social media platforms. <laughs> um, while my relationship and existence in public on the internet comes with great harassment and sometimes danger. It is a very important outlet for me. It is life-saving. As a, an Indian American who is part of the diaspora, who has some family in the U.S., who is fat, who is queer, politically queer, abolish policing and prisons queer, um, who is critical of the Indian state and Hindu fascism. Like I, I exist in a very niche population. I need social media in order to find community in the world. Like there are not a lot of people out there who live in my zip code. <laughs> so I've really got to hunt for the people who share my identity because for much of my twenties I felt like, am I the only one? And like 
am I alone? Am I, am I the only person who looks like me who cares about what I care about and what I want to dedicate my whole life to? Um, which is like having creating a creating the new world, the new world that exists without capitalism, without policing, without prisons, without fat phobia, without white supremacy. So like if if I'm going to be committed to this, I need to know I'm not alone. And social media helps me know I'm not alone. I need it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I how do you deal with the harassment, the trolls, the negativity? How do you keep it a safe space for yourself? I have to use a Finsta and a Finsta is a fake Instagram. <laughs> so I have a public facing Instagram that has, it houses a lot of my political education content, popular education content, and a lot of uh, just ideas about internalized fat phobia, concepts I'm trying to help people understand and apply on a lot more of a liberal is not the right word, but like common basis. And my Finsta is a place where I interact with people who I've actually met in person or who I've known for a while online. And I post my like problematic, like gay memes and like my real opinions and where I'm at, where I actually am in real time or like photos of my home. Um, because it's, it can be dangerous to show where I am in the, in live real time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's, I think, especially for people who are not in their thirties, who are using social media, uh, kids who grew up with social media. I think that it's really important for people to know that it's really dangerous to, use social media to expose so much of your your life on these platforms, especially because it's so easy to grow huge followings now on various platforms. And we can't assume that everybody who is interacting with social media is a safe person. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there. Yes. To exist on the internet as a fat brown gay person. Um, who is against the U.S. and Indian states? Um, it also comes with like some really angry trolls and like angry trolls who want to dox me on the internet. So I've had to, since I first was like notorious on the internet, um, was like when I called. I did a talk at a university in Minnesota and. I had no idea that there was going to be, or that there was like a large white supremacist student following there and white supremacists, like oh my youth, like young white men Whoa, in their twenties attended the talk and like made sure that they got it recorded, make sure that there were photos, published it in the local school paper. That was like a white supremacist school paper. And not that, not one that the school promotes, but one that like the alt-right reads and my face has been like in the alt right for years because of that. And like, holy fuck! Oh yeah, That's like terrifying. I've been, it's terrifying. And like, I've been, I had to pay for a security. You're, you're, you're really getting me today. I my baby, that. my baby, she's crying. <laughs> yeah, it's like really scary to exist on the internet because people literally will write me messages like "kill yourself," and they'll say things like, and and they and I've gotten. I've heard through this security firm that I had to hire 
to wipe my shit you off the internet. Pay out of pocket. I had to pay out of pocket, and shit's very expensive. And they had to wipe my shit off the internet so that I couldn't get doxxed. And they would tell me like, "Hey, we saw your name come up on the deep web, and people are talking." And it's like, oh "Thank you for letting God. me know." And they and I'll get warnings, and they'll tell me. Um, don't open any packages that come that you have oh not ordered. Yes. So like, this is dangerous. And I'm laughing because it's scary. And I have to remember that like, if someone really wanted me dead, it's not hard to find me. And they would have come and done it by now. That's what also what I tell myself. <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> I, I hear how that's comforting, but it's also like <laughs> the fact that we have to find comfort through that is like really, I mean, there's obviously a lot of PTSD and having to comfort yourself with that expression. Oh, God. You know? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, could, I could easily be dead by now. And the fact that I'm not speaks volumes. Like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is horrific. And also, I mean, I really think speaks to how I, I exactly like the depth of this problem and the things that you're addressing, which at have been so whitewashed in so many ways, you know, even, you know, body positivity and th that whole community. I, I'm very I have a lot of like social media habits. And the main one is that if I see a post that makes me feel any type of way that is not inspired, positive or excited, mute, block, unfollow. Because I don't want anything. Yeah, it's so important. <laughs> I don't want anything in my psyche that is, yeah, you know, negative. I don't want, I love to go on social media and I like to have a good relationship with it, which also requires me being accountable to like, how do you, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel good or not good? And right. if not, no judgment, just remove it <laughs> from your psyche, you know, fine. But the body positivity extension of social media has been a very odd place to navigate. <sighs> and I would imagine that a lot of the, um, well, I, before I continue, I'd like to know your thoughts on it since this is <laughs> kind of adjacent to your world. But I, but I guess my thesis is that I don't think everybody who is identifying as body positive is getting death threats and has their... Uh information in the dark web alt-right forums mm -mm -mm -mm. um what you're describing is the colonization of body positivity because body positivity was invented fat liberation was invented by fat black queer women and what we're seeing today is a whitewashing it is a commercializing because capitalism will sell us anything it will sell it right back to us if we're not careful. Oh, oh, it's so nauseating. Right? It is. And what we're seeing is people who are still trying to peddle diet culture as wellness culture. And so it isn't, oh, we're going to lose weight to look better or to be more aesthetically pleasing to the white male gaze. But now it is, or just the white gaze in general. Now it is, oh, I'm, we need to lose weight to be healthier. I mean, I need to have better health outcomes. And having a good health outcome is good because it makes us responsible, good people. It makes us good as a nation. Um, this is our patriotic duty to be well and to not be a fat country. So like, or, these are just really interesting things that I hear now. And what they don't do is let people have body autonomy. What this doesn't do is remind fat people that they deserve to exist and 
They deserve to have adequate medical care, um, which is essentially why I exist in the world. I want people, the whole reason that my platform exists is because we have not taken down fat phobia yet. And if we were to take down fat phobia, it would require us to take down anti-blackness, white supremacy, Western civilization, um, the Western science and white supremacist science that created the BMI. Um, Cause an actual white supremacist invented the body mass index, uh, which is what we still use today. And it's used to gatekeep fat people from accessing life-saving medical procedures. Um, like top surgery, like bottom surgery, like in vitro fertilization. Why does BMI, why is BMI a barrier for someone to donate their sperm? It's because they don't want fat people to exist in the world. So it's just like um, BMI needs to be taken into consideration. We need to abolish the BMI. So how can we, me, our listeners, you know, what steps can we take practically to mm. do this work um, for ourselves and for our community? I'll name you some ideas around patient advocacy and also um, some ideas around desire mapping. So patient advocacy ways that you can put pressure against BMI is you can um, ask your, when you go to your next doctor's appointment, ask to not be weighed, ask to withhold that information, ask your medical care providers uh, is this medically necessary? And is there a policy that could be put in place so that there's a, this way and it's optional and not mandatory? What this helps to do is also withhold this information from your insurance companies because as our bodies change over time, if they increase in size, that BMI number is often used as a way to gatekeep insurance companies from giving us access to treatment. So this is one thing I can think of. It also helps us to feel like we can go to the doctors and not have weight be a topic of conversation. So uh, I think that's one really big one, um, how we show up in medical spaces and defending our right, whether we're fat or not, um, our right to have a, a medical visit that has nothing to do about weight. Um, uh, I also would advise this concept of like desire mapping, which is one I learned from Hunter Shackelford. And what they've described desire mapping to me is like, do you think about um, how you engage with people that you call beautiful or pretty? So you might comment under a photo of me, a fat brown queer person on the internet. Oh my gosh, you look so beautiful. But you know, would you go on a date with someone who looks like me? Would you hire someone who looks like me for a job interview? Would you, uh, or someone darker than me, someone trans, someone who's undocumented? right? Like we can also make this identity more complex um, based on desirability. And would you um, rent an apartment to me? Would you welcome me if your brother, sister, sibling brought me home as their date to um, a, a holiday dinner? Um, desire mapping asks us to question who we allow access to us in our life. Um, who we welcome very easily and who we don't and why. And that's like a much deeper question, I think. It asks us like, how did we develop this desire map of who we find desirable and who we don't? And do we let ourselves challenge the ways that we've inherited uh, or ways that we've been taught we should measure someone else's desirability? And if 
someone sees or hears someone saying fat phobic things or treating someone either directly to their face or not to their face, but speaking in language that is violent and harmful, how do you recommend navigating that? Because the truth is, is that it's so fucking pervasive. And yeah. it's, you know, I, I, I actually, I love older generations. I really appreciate and value them very deeply. But <laughs> especially with the boomers, which I think is really fascinating how like they got a lot right. And then they really got a lot wrong at the mm. same time. But, you know, complexity is nuance. Mm. My mom, who, for instance, is a is, you know, a really progressive person in many, many ways, especially as it relates to sexuality and gender identity and gender expression is deeply fat phobic. Right. Mm. And deeply and, you know, grew up as a Ashkenazi Jew where you everyone got a nose job. And that was actually what, you know, you you'd go broke doing it, but you had to, you know, mm -hmm. like it was no question. So my mom is an example, but I think a lot of parents or grandparents for some folks who have this so embedded into them. Do we deal with them? Do we try or is it like a lost cause? Like, how do you how do you think we should approach it? <laughs> well, I'll give you an example of how I do it in my own family, because Never, ever let anyone tell you that your family can't be the site of where your political beliefs get to be enacted and you get to witness change happen over years of time. Because what me and my siblings, me and my sister specifically, have been doing over time is noticing that we have this like sixth sense and this perception where we're really able to see anti-blackness as it shows up in our family or fat phobia show up. I, I really can see fat phobia because that's my lived experience. And what I can offer my parents is to call it out when I see it every time. And what that helps them to do is to be able to anticipate when I am going to check them. Because what my dad will say is, I'm going to say this thing, but I know that you're going to tell me it's racist. And I'm like, well, then shouldn't we have a conversation about why you're still going to say it? Because what that has done for him is to help him know, I'm going to say something that's going to upset someone else in this room. And we might not have the same belief that <laughs> Black people are valid. Black people shouldn't be criminalized. Black people shouldn't be in prisons. Black, Black people shouldn't be murdered by police. And um, he and I will grapple with all of his anti-Black beliefs until our time is up on this planet. But he knows because I help him to see it. I name it every time I see it. And it doesn't have to be a full out fight. It doesn't have to be, you're a terrible person because you have this opinion, right? I don't have to get his defenses up, but I can simply state, I don't agree with that. Well, that's not how I feel. Yeah, that's just not how I see it. Yeah, I guess we just disagree. Yeah, I think that that's really, I, I really love the idea of, um, you know, sort of creating an association of something being said or thought being shared and it being brought to the table, but then like, okay, well, you know, I see it. I'm going to put my finger in it. Like, how does, how is it going now? You know, what happens if it's being challenged? I mean, in my microcosm of, in my mom's example, me, um, <laughs> denying or saying I'm not going to get a nose job finally after millions of years, it feels like, of my mom being like, one day, one day when you have money, one day. Because I was also 
poor. So like there was no money Mm -hmm. to get me one. It was just constantly badgering me that I needed it without actually even being able to like back it up anywhere. So like (laughs) one day when I'm rich enough, I'll get one. Maybe my rich husband will get me one or something. And finally getting to the point where I'm like, I don't think I'm going to was like a radical mind fuck of a moment, because obviously that is a microcosm for a lot of aggression, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, deep colonization, white supremacy, like just indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was a small gesture in the grand scheme of things. But it also allowed me to start building up my confidence to challenge things on an embodied level to be like, don't impose that on my body. That's I make I'm going to make the choice and stop telling me what to do with my body and what's attractive about my body or what's unattractive about my body. It's not your fucking business. What a relief it is to step into your rebellion and your disobedience, because that is what we all need to. That's what we all (laughs) need to find. That is our literal mission as non-men on this earth. Good. Yes. I'm glad you did that because you transform legacies. You you transform what we've inherited when you say no. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I did feel at that moment, which was maybe about 10 years ago now, but I feel like that was the first step in starting to break down that uh, one of the trauma cycles, you know, Um, of a multi-generational not being good enough. We're conforming. We're still unhappy. We're still depressed. We're still, you know, we still have mental illness in our family running rampant that has been overprescribed and, you know, all of the things that when you really just start to ask questions and why and challenge things, it's very clear that, I mean, it really all just goes back to white supremacy, you know, and it's like it just funnels down into that as the common denominator. And obviously, like that is needs to change now (laughs) it needs to so every single little thing that is dropping down into it like we need to you know grab it as it's dropping be like oh nope we're not we're not putting any more into this yeah no more people no more generations no more of this this narrative and we also need to uproot the the tree that's dropping these things, right? These like acorns of white supremacy down generational patterns. We need to uproot the whole tree. We need to treat the soil so that white supremacy cannot grow there again, right? Like abolish means and radical change means uprooting the whole thing from the roots and imagining a whole new world where our bodies are allowed to exist exactly as they are. And also I want to make sure that I'm not moralizing any decision, right? Like there is pain and trauma to deal with whether you do, whether someone decides to say no to a generational curse or decides to say, okay, I'm going to acquiesce, I'm going to conform and assimilate to the generational curse. There is pain and suffering on both sides. <laughs> and there's no, no one is morally better for making any one decision over the other. So whatever decisions we might have made to conform, that's fine. Moving forward, what are the ways that you want to embody rebellion? Right. And right. And also, you know, like the fear and the relationships you have with your family, with society, some people are not in a safe position to be able to. Absolutely. Say, I disagree or, you know, I dissent. If you're not, if you were raised in an abusive household, if you were raised with real threats of fear, then if you're not you like, never, like me, yeah, you, you have may never very be different position. choices. 
Yeah. And and that's why if you do have the ability, it's like even more important because it's it's not just for those who are also with you in that process. It's also for those who aren't capable, whether it be by circumstance, context, narrative, you know, situations way outside of anyone's control that they can't advocate for themselves and they can't break those cycles. We're all really in this together. We come with so many complex lived realities that I trust you are living out your body autonomy the way that you have found it to be best for you. And I'm not going to assume that I somehow know better than you know about yourself. That's body autonomy. I love that so much. Well, I want to talk about this workshop that you're going to be hosting in July, um, what it means, what it's going to contain, and where listeners can sign up for it. Mm. I and my business partner, Carlos Epi, co-own a practice called Radical Therapy Center. So on that website, RadicalTherapyCenter.com, there is an events page where all of my tickets are listed. Um, I have a couple of workshops coming up. There is one in July specifically that you're talking about that is a sexual attitude reassessment. Uh, This is something that we specifically do with sex therapists, sexuality professionals, even clinicians, therapists, counselors, Um, anyone who really works with people and wants to understand fatness in a different way, wants to unlearn um, a lot of the negative things we've inherited about fatness, so really anti-fat bias and fat phobia. And if you want to implant about seven hours of content where we imagine um, in this workshop, it'll be fatness as supernatural. And whoa, yeah, that's like the the theme. Oh and- my god, that is that is so amazing. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> and in a sexual attitude reassessment, what we do is we show sexually explicit content. So we'll literally be in a Zoom classroom um, watching clips of porn, like graphic, sexually graphic content, in order to notice what feelings get kicked up within us and talk about them with other people who want to create a container for creating new, healthy, not healthy, delicious, beautiful, (laughs) scrumptious, amazing narratives for fatness. That's the kind of workshop that we're going to be doing. We have it happening in April and it'll be again in July. And I've also got some things in the work around immigrant futures, healing immigrant kid trauma, um, healing immigrant kid shame, and also teaching clinicians how to heal immigrant shame. Oh, I'm so glad to know you. I'm so I'm so grateful. These <laughs> programs sound incredible. They sound really important and also like really creatively inspiring. Um, I love the language that you're using to describe them. Obviously, you know, as a witchy bitch here, it's right up my alley. Um, <laughs> so where can we find you and how can we continue to connect with you and learn about your work? The best place to find me is on Instagram at the fat sex therapist. And that's where all my popular education is. And if you need to reach out to me for any reason, you can find me at sonalir.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. 